continuing now with the story in 1 Kings 18. So we're going to be continuing in chapter, verse 21 and going to the end of the chapter. And if you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles, it's about page 374. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord has come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stone and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. 
So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servants. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain came on and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Thanks be to God for his word. Uh, good morning again, friends, and thanks, Lauren, for such, such a helpful reading. Uh, let's, let's pray together. We consider that wonderful part of God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so very much that you tell us what we need to hear. And as your saved and blood-bought children, you tell us what we long to hear. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that this morning we would hear you uh, for our good, for others' good, and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, friends, we had an interesting uh, moment at the Sorensen uh, breakfast table uh, not too long ago. Uh, we were doing our morning Bible reading with the children, uh, reading the story of the Exodus. You know, the one with the plagues and the power and the people set free by God. And, and I was doing all the things you're supposed to do. I did all the voices, you know, harsh voice for Pharaoh, a deep voice for God. I, I did all the actions, you know, I was hopping with the frogs and scratching for the gnats. And anyway, as we came to the end and, and we said our prayers and we, and we closed our Bible and I looked at my watch, uh, one of my girls leaned over with a serious look on her face and she checked that no one else was listening. And do you know what she said? Daddy, sometimes I feel like God isn't really real. Sometimes I feel like God isn't really there. Do you ever feel like that, Daddy? To which, of course, I replied, of course not, don't be silly, go to your room. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, what I actually said was, yes, sometimes. Sometimes I feel like that too. In fact, I think sometimes everyone feels like that. I remember hearing a great preacher say once, a little like Yang did uh, earlier, that every morning he wakes up an atheist. Every morning he battles to believe again. And I don't know about you, but I remember when I heard that thinking, yes, I agree. That's me. Not, not every morning perhaps, just to be rest assured, and not perhaps an atheist, and certainly not when I'm here. You know, with people like you and we're, and we're singing God's praises and believing in him is, is popular and, and we're doing it together but, but away from here and away from you, out there or on campus in a world where there's constant opposition to God and countless 
alternatives to God, a world that is so massively and vocally underestimates the God we know in the Bible, well then I've got to tell you sometimes I wonder, along with my little girl, is God really there? Am I as foolish as I feel to live my life for him? Am I right? Is it wise to give my life to him? On the the off chance you two have ever just maybe felt like that, whether you're here in Christian or not, come with me 1 Kings chapter 18 where I think God answers those questions. But God reminds them then and us now that he alone is truly God and he alone is truly gracious and he alone truly demands our lives. But before we get there, a little bit of context, some very important context. In the previous chapter, you can flick there if you like, in chapter 17, uh, the battle lines were drawn, this is very important, we know this, between wicked King Ahab and the faithful prophet Elijah between the the wannabe god Baal and Elijah's god, God. And the question raised was, who is the one true God? Is it the God that Israel know or is it this new God on the block? Uh, This new God, by the way, and this is important for this chapter, who was supposed to offer life, who was supposed to send the rain, who was supposed to control the storm. Now, 1 Kings chapter 17, we've already begun to see the answer to that question, but here in chapter 18, we hear it loud and clear. Because here, if there's one thing this passage, chapter 18, screams is, it's that God alone is truly God. And in fact, if you see it in the very first verse, I wonder if you saw it there, as we see that it's God alone who sends the rain. Do you see it? Just as, as it was in the previous chapter, God alone who stopped the rain. And as the verses goes on, it's God alone who directs his prophet, just as it was God alone who hid his prophet. And then, most spectacularly of all, and so well read by Lauren, although actually no less powerful than the other things he's already done, we see that it's God alone who sends down fire from the sky to make himself known. Let's have a look at it. Have a look at it with me from verse uh, 21. It'd be great if you had your Bibles open. Verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But, rather ominously, the people said nothing. And Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call them a name of your God and I'll call them a name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. And of course it was good. Or at least it should have been for the prophets of Baal. 
After all, do you remember what their Baal was supposed to control? He was supposed to control the storm. He was supposed to control the rain. He was supposed to control the lightning. In other words, the fire that falls from the sky. And what's more, where is this battle to happen? Back in verse 19, on Mount Carmel. The mount, they say, the Assyrians called the mountain of Baal. In other words, Baal's home turf, his home ground advantage. And if that wasn't enough, did you notice there, verse 22, who has all the numbers? Baal does, by 450 to 1. You see, this couldn't be more stacked in Baal's favour. That's the point that we're not supposed to miss. If he exists, he must win. And so the contest begins. You read on there, the prophets of Baal, see verse 26, prepare their sacrifice and they perform their ritual and they, they slash their bodies and, and Elijah cried out, and this was read so very well, verse 27, and I couldn't help sort of imagining this, it was read, Elijah sitting on a deck chair, you know, maybe a bucket of popcorn, um, jumbo-sized drink in his hand, you know, shout louder, he said, surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy chapeling. Munch, munch, munch. Maybe he's sleeping and must be wakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But, Verse 29, and and the wording of this is so desperately important. Have a look. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Why? Because there was no one there. No one there to answer. No matter how loud they yelled or how hard they tried, or sincere they were, or religious they seemed. See, friends, I don't know about you, but I think so often it is so easy to look on at our world and at the religions we see and the sincerity they have and the emotion they feel and even the service we do and to to sort of think to yourself, (laughs) who, who, who am I? to say that that's wrong, but this is right. Who am I to say that that they need this like I need this? But here's the thing. They do and they're wrong and this is right. No matter how emotional they seem or sincere they are or religious they appear, Verse 29, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then it was Elijah's turn, did you see? Or better yet, actually, it was God's turn. Pick up verse 30. Verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. 
Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. As if to remind them of who they are, or, or better perhaps, whose they are. Verse 32, with large stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sears of seed and he arranged the wood and cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood and, and then just when you thought it couldn't be stacked any more in Baal's favour, what does Elijah do? He said to them, fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood and then do it again, he said. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. And the water ran around the altar and even filled up the trench. It seems as though Elijah knows that the last thing he needs is some later claim of spontaneous combustion. You know, some casual Israelite thinking, oh no, I just walked past and dropped my cigarette. That's really what... No, if this is going to happen, this will have to be by God. And then, verse 36... At the time of sacrifice, in other words, at the time when forgiveness was sought and given, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and simply prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! And of course, if that's true, then it's always and everywhere true. No matter the geography, even on Mount Carmel, no matter his popularity, even if it's 450 to 1, and no matter how massive the odds are arranged against him, everywhere and always, he alone is truly God. See, I don't know about you, but I have to admit for me there are times and places where God feels more real and more relevant and more powerful, more there. On Sundays, yes. Here, yes. With you, yes. But on Mondays, Tuesdays, when I'm away from here and away from you and I'm back on campus and it really is 450 to 1. See, I have to admit that sometimes it feels like God is less there. But friends, of course, he's not. He's no less there no matter where I am. He's no less God no matter who's with me. Friends, when it comes to God, geography doesn't determine potency. Popularity doesn't define reality. He's not an idea that's only for here but not for work and not for union, not for friends. Everywhere and always, he alone is truly God. 
And friends, that is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. Why? Because he alone is truly gracious. See, if the first thing this passage screams is that he alone is truly God, the second thing is that he alone is truly gracious, both in the way he provides and in the way he relates. See, first in the way he provides, in particular the way he provides the life-giving rain. See, it was promised there, verse 1, and then provided, verse 45. And not just a little, did you notice, this is very important, but verse 45, heavy rain from black clouds. This is abundant, undeserved, gracious provision. See, I wonder if you notice the the gracious way that God provides frames the chapter from beginning to end and and then the gracious way that God relates fills the space in between. Did you see it? One of the clearest ways you do is in the contrast between Baal's way and God's way. After all, what was Baal's way of religion? Why, it was classic false religion, wasn't it? It was all about you, your initiative, your performance, your blood, did you see? It was about you crying out and crying out and crying out to a a lifeless, mechanical, impersonal God. A God who sort of crank you try to turn and arms you try to twist like some great cosmic vending machine that you persuade by your performance. So just maybe he'll do something for you. But what do they get? Verse 29 again, they get nothing. Nothing, he said in the present, verse 29, a frustrating silence. And in the future, tragically, verse 40, an awful, awful death. Contrast that to Elijah and to God's way to relate. Did you see it? How's that? It's by God taking the initiative. God moving to us. Now, we should have already seen that in the very first verse, actually, as God approached and God spoke and God directed. But I wonder, did you see it too in Elijah's prayer? See, but suppose you could look at this and think it was all Elijah's very clever idea. Good job, Elijah. In fact, this is such a good idea. I'm going to do this on Monday. At uni, school, work, I'm going to build an altar, call down some fire. Good thumbs up, Elijah. But now, did you see how he prayed there, verse 36? Have a look again, verse 36. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, I'm your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Friends, it's desperately important when it comes to the Bible and to the God who will ultimately meet in Jesus, the direction of travel is completely turned around. It's exactly the opposite to every other false religion. Not us to him but him to us. Not our initiative, our performance, our blood, but his initiative, his performance and even his blood poured out for us. See, I don't know about you, but for me all those wonderful Sunday school memory verses all come flooding back. 
didn't talk, you didn't even need them, did you? But, but you do. Like, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, friends, he is the lover who makes the first move. He is the champion who fights our fight for us. He is the hero who lays down his life and if that wasn't generous enough, having done all that, he is the father who stoops down to us just as he did to Elijah, who stoops down to us like his little toddler child and invites us by our prayers to enter into his work. Friends, I think we so often look at other religions and we make this assumption that the God they follow is just like ours but with a different name. Or the religion they follow, it's just like ours but with a different name. Friends, it could not be further from the truth. It is as different as we read here, as different as Baal and Jesus, as Allah and Jesus, as money and Jesus. Everything else that claims to be your God will let you down and will break your heart, but not him. Why? Because he alone is truly and completely and forever gracious. And finally, he alone demands our lives. He alone demands that if we, he is our God, then we are his child. That if he is our God, then we must follow him. This is exactly what Elijah said to the people, wasn't it? Did you see it there, verse 21? Verse 21, did you hear it when it was read? Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Baal is God, fine, follow him. You see, either way, Elijah says you have to make a choice. You can't have it both ways. As Jesus will say later, at one of our culture's most favourite Baals, do you remember? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You have to make a choice. And then once you have, you have to follow the one you choose. If the Lord is God, follow him. Wherever he leads, whatever he says, even when it's really, really hard. When he says things like, sell your possessions, give to the poor. If the Lord is God, follow him. Or when he says, flee from sexual immorality. Don't even toy with it, not even on the TV screen. If the Lord is God, follow him. When he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse if the Lord is God, follow him. 
Matthew 28, therefore go, make disciples of all nations. If the Lord is God, follow him. See, I don't know how it worked for you, but I think when I came to Jesus, I said something like, great, great to have you on board, God. Now let's get to work completing my agenda. And God shakes his head. <laughs> That's what we say next. We say, oh, sorry, God, sorry, my mistake. Of course, let's put you up here at the top and let's get to work completing our agenda. And again, God shakes his head. And what does he say? On the fact he says nothing, he simply takes our agenda out of our hand. He tears us up in front of us and then he gives us his his agenda to live for him under his son. Elijah said to the people, if the Lord is God, follow him. And friends, if that was true then, how much more for us now? If true for them who had only seen God send down fire to make himself known, how much more us who have seen that same God send down his one and only beloved son to make us his own, to make himself known, who have seen that God give up his son to make himself known and to make us his own. As one of my favourite hymns will say, so too must we, if he really is our God. This life I live is not my own, for my Redeemer paid the price. He took it to be his alone, to be his treasure and his prize. The things of earth I leave behind to live in worship of my King. His is the right to rule my life. Mine is the joy to follow him. Friends, the God we meet in Jesus is truly God. He is truly gracious and he alone demands our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us and showing us again here from 1 Kings chapter 18 what you have about yourself and about us. Thank you for you. You show us even more clearly in, in the Lord Jesus that you alone are truly God and you alone are truly gracious and you alone do demand our lives every single bit. Our Father, we pray that each of us here today, whether for the very first time or the thousandth and first time, we pray that each of us here today would this week, this day, believe that with all of our heart and express it in all of our lives. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.